Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. I'm Christopher Kimball, and in this special episode of Milk Street Radio, we're traveling to Italy. We'll hear from Vicki Benison, who's always on the search for pasta-making grandmothers. 
One of the things we often do is, you know, we find on a train or a hotel receptionist and we say, do you have a grandmother? <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're always asking. <laughs> That's later in the show, Vicki Benison, creator of the Pasta Grannies YouTube channel. But first, let's hear some travel wisdom from journalist Matt Goulding. I spoke with him in 2018 about his book, Pasta Pane Vino, which covers some of Italy's greatest culinary destinations. Matt, how are you? I am doing well, Chris. Yourself? Uh, good. In Pasta Pane Vino, there's two totally different themes. On one hand, don't mess with tradition. You write, every time a chef puts cream in a sauce and an Italian chef dies, we're not just offended, we're actually vomiting. <laughs> I like that quote. <laughs> and, and then on the other hand, you write, everywhere you turn in Italy, you see examples of a cuisine in a moment of great change, perhaps the greatest this country has seen since World War II. So on one hand, if you add garlic to Amatriciana, you know, there, there are riots in the streets. On the other hand, people are, are folding in matcha powder into fresh goat yogurt. <laughs> right. So how, how does that work? Tradition versus the new, they just coexist? You know, from a traditional standpoint, I think there's still a lot of people inside and outside of Italy who believe Italian food should not be changed. It should be the way that it's been. The carbonara should always be made this way. The ragu should always be made that way. And those traditions should be protected. But the side effect of that is sort of treating cuisine as if it were a museum piece, you know, Italian cuisine as something encased in amber. And of course it's not, right? It's culture. And culture, by definition, is this living, breathing, evolving organism. And so I think for a long time, that tradition really was maintained pretty firmly. But now that Italy has been you know, in a, a period of growth, a period of more stability, and you're seeing a lot of younger chefs finally kind of taking steps forward. Your book, Pasta, Pane, Vino, it's really a travel book, too. It's, I mean, I have to say, if anyone wants to go to Italy, they should buy this book because there are all sorts of places you've never heard of and also lots of eateries that you've never heard of. So Matera, if I pronounce that properly, I, I almost fell over reading this. Could you tell me the story of that? Because uh, this, this, these are houses that were really caves, and the government swept everyone out of this town back in the 1950s. Right. So the old part of Matera, Matera is in Basilicata, right on the edge of Puglia, sort of near the heel of the boot. And it's really one of the most stunning small towns, small cities or large towns of Italy. But it's had this very tragic history where for the better part of the, you know, the first half of the 20th century, you have this community of cave dwellers living in what was called the Sassi, literally homes that were carved directly into the side of the mountain. And, you know, the system had been around for hundreds of years, but the Italian government moved in and forced these people out of these old cave homes and then relocated them to these massive sort of block government housing. Why did they do that? They did that because they felt like the conditions of these caves were getting worse and worse, that the health conditions, that the poverty was, was kind of growing out of control. And this is sort of post-World War II Italy where they're trying to sort of clamp down on some of these things and provide some better services for, for Italian citizens. So it was, I think it was done with the right intention. The execution of it was extremely questionable. It remains extremely controversial. But 
the, the great story here is that now people have returned to this part of Matera, to the old caves, and they've begun to build new businesses in them. So you'll find bed and breakfasts and agriturismo. You'll find a cool bar, an awesome restaurant. And it's really one of the most magical towns I've ever been to. And it's sort of finally coming into its own in southern Italy. Are there other spots, one or two, uh, you ran across in your travels that most of us would never have heard of, like Matera, that we ought to visit? Yeah, I think uh, another one that comes up for me is Lecce, which is part of Puglia. You know, it's um, very famous for its limestone. So the entire city is this beautiful, soft, smooth, white limestone, gorgeous old churches, wonderful old structures, and I think a, a really exciting new food scene, including a restaurant called Bros, which is run by a 24-year-old chef who may be one of the most talented cooks pound for pound in Italy. So what about, just mention a couple other chefs or, or restaurants, uh, cafes that are really out of the ordinary? Sure. For me, one of the, the most, I'll give you a couple more, but one, one of the most ex- extraordinary experiences for me was, was spending a lot of time in Sardinia. And, um, you know, I, I had been talking to Massimo Bottura, you know, the famous chef from Morena, and he had said, you got to go to Sardinia and you got to go see a guy named Roberto Pezza. And Roberto Pezza was born and raised in Sardinia and has been there trying to fight for the food system for most of his career a remarkable chef kind of operating a very, very excellent, high-quality restaurant, the only Michelin star in Sardinia, in a town of 25 people, basically. There's two streets, and there's this restaurant. What's the name of the restaurant? It's called Sa Aposento. Sa Aposento. And um, it's it's in an old home, an old pot. It used to be an old pasta warehouse there that has been converted into this beautiful restaurant. And more importantly, that Roberto, I think, lives and breathes the Sardinian culture. And I think it's a part of Italian cuisine and travel that is so largely ignored by both Italians and travelers alike. Now some advice for tourists. So, and I include myself in this, what are some things that would really improve your experience? I mean, one thing I would start with, honestly, is is getting out of those big tourist centers. I mean, find two or three places that you didn't know anything about and go there. Stay in Agriturismos. You know, there's Italian family-run sort of bed and breakfast. By law, they have to be, I think, 50% of their revenue has to come directly from agricultural production. So that means they're making olive oil, they're making their own cheese, their own charcuterie, and that means that you're going to be right there to experience that. So it's not just a really affordable sort of night to eat well and, uh, you know, a good bed and a good breakfast in the morning, but also an education in the local cuisine and a terroir. And um, you're going to have a really intimate experience the more that you stay in these agriturismos. You spent a lot of time, a lot of mileage in Italy, and I would guess there were more than a few moments where you came across something you didn't expect. Uh, What was one of those moments? Yeah, you're right. I mean, there was there were a lot of those moments. That's the wonderful thing about Italy. But I think the one that sticks out the most for me is um, it's actually the last chapter in the book. It's about Lake Como, an area that I had long sort of avoided because I just thought it was sort of you know glitz and glamour and the George Clooney's and the upper crust of the world. Um, but I ended up there sort of by serendipity and you know ended up in a tiny little village next to Bellagio called San Giovanni. And um, everything was closed. There was one little restaurant that I was open there, and we stumbled into this place called Ristorante Mella. 
and it turned out to be a husband and a wife. And the husband woke up every morning and did all the fishing along the lake shores. In the afternoon, uh, his wife prepared the food. And it was just, um, it was an amazing sort of change to, to the Italian cuisine that I was used to. You know, lake fish, sort of the second class citizen to ocean fish. But prepare with that same mentality of, of local, of extreme care, of simple techniques, of real respect for the ingredients. And at the end, you'd have 15 or 20 different expressions of Lake Cuomo's sort of aquaculture um, channeled through this one tiny, lovely little family restaurant. So I shouldn't be telling everyone this because I, I want to be able to go back there and find a table. But uh, Ristorante Mella and San Giovanni and Lake Cuomo are really, really a magical slice of Italy. Well... I don't know whether to thank you. For, I mean, your book may ruin all these great places because they're all going to get discovered now. But I'm going to better go quickly before it's all over. Matt, thank you so much. Great book, uh, Pasta Pane Vino. It's it's really remarkable amount of effort and work and uh, extraordinary. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. That was Matt Goulding, author of Pasta Pane Vino, Deep Travels Through Italy's Food Culture. Over the years, Sarah Malt and I have answered your questions on Italian cooking. Here are a few of our favorites. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, this is Galen. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I just saw you walk by. (laughs) (laughs) You may have. Same town. How can we help you? I guess my question is generally, are all tomatoes created equal? cooked a pizza last week and made a homemade tomato sauce and found myself wondering, should I put in fresh tomatoes if they're going to be cooked? If I do put in fresh tomatoes, which kind of tomatoes should I put in? Some recipes call for Roma, some just say tomatoes, some say canned tomatoes. And then once you go down canned, diced, crushed, stewed, what are the differences and what would be good to know about how to use them? Good question. First of all, all tomatoes are created equal. They're all equally terrible <laughs> in terms of fresh tomatoes. Last week, I got a couple tomatoes from a local greengrocer here. You know, they were pretty good, but about a third as good as what I grew up with, you know, as I remember anyway. So I don't know what's happened to tomatoes, but I've not had a great tomato other than small sun goals, the tiny ones, for decades. In Italy, when we traveled there, when they make a tomato sauce, almost universally they come out of a can. So wow. I have no problem at all using canned tomatoes. The ones you want to stay away from are diced tomatoes because they add calcium carbonate or something similar to firm them up. And they don't actually ever really cook down into a sauce. So canned whole tomatoes is what I would use. In terms of you know canning your own sauce or your own sauce for storage, Roma tomatoes, which don't have a lot of liquid in them, tend to be meatier. But it's all about quality. Sarah, do you have any? Well, I was going to say for pizza, like if I was going to make a pizza margarita, I would use fresh tomatoes, but I would salt them first. I sort of agree with Chris. I was sort of horrified by the first thing he said. But even getting from the farmer's market, sometimes they're a little mealy inside or they're not quite as tomato-y as they used to be. Okay, I'm going to ask you, you have to answer honestly. Have you, in the last five years, ever picked up a tomato and smelled it and went, wow, that smells like a tomato? Yeah, and you're not going to believe what it was. It was cocktail tomatoes Uh on the vine from Whole Foods. Really? 
yeah, they smelled fantastic and they tasted fantastic. But I generally have better luck with uh, fresh tomatoes if I salt them first. And I salt them on both sides and leave them for 20 minutes and then pat them dry. And that really pulls out yeah. the excess liquid, flavors them deeply, and concentrates the tomato-y essence. I would add also a big splash of really good fruity olive oil at the end. It gives you this texture, this silky texture to the sauce and this flavor that I think, even if you start with mediocre canned tomatoes, is great. Use some mm-hmm. grated onion, fry that up in the oil or saute it in the oil, and then slice garlic. Don't use crushed garlic. Slice garlic cloves because they don't give you that really strong aftertaste. And don't overcook them in the oil. It'll cure any tomato if it's any deficiency because it just doesn't matter when you got those ingredients. Right, Sarah? I mean, it's really about this is tomato first aid, right? Yeah, yeah. It is too bad that we need tomato first aid, though. I agree. It is. What a shame. Anyway, well, thank you for that question. Yes. I will. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really thanks appreciate for calling. It. Sure. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Oh, this is George Linhart from Jackson, Wyoming. How can we help you? We now live at altitude, about uh-huh. 6,000 feet, and things that worked before don't work here. Simple things like um, trying to make a panna cotta. I've tried increasing the, the amount of gelatin or trying to make sure I get it a little hotter, but... It never sets. When you add the gelatin, are you adding it mm-hmm. on top of the dairy, the cream, or whatever you're using as it comes out of the fridge and then slowly heating it up just to dissolve it? Or, or how hot is the uh, liquid? Oh, um, I don't get it above um, 130 or 140 oh. degrees. The materials okay. are usually at room temperature. Right. I put the gelatin in. I would first slowly warm the milk up and then add the gelatin into it and then try to blend the milk and the cream together until it's all smooth. And then have you tried putting the sprinkle, the gelatin on the cold milk, letting it sit for about five minutes till it it starts to dissolve and it, it changes into a gel and then heating it slowly. Have you done that? No, I thought I would try to dissolve it first rather than just no, you, you, you have to start by sprinkling gelatin on the liquid. Gelatin has to first be dissolved yeah, in then, a cold liquid. And then you heat it slowly uh, and then stir it just for oh. three or four minutes to get it to fully dissolve in the liquid. But you start with cold water, milk, or whatever it is, oh. right? Yes, absolutely. So I think that's the step that you're missing. Well, the other possibility is he's living in a haunted house. You know, that, that would, nothing seems to <laughs> no, work the way it used to no, before no, you no, moved no. in. Well, that, we right. certainly know it's a challenge to be at a high altitude, but a panna cotta should work. And I think the problem is, I think Chris and I agree, that you need to soak the gelatin, sprinkle it on some cold liquid, and let it dissolve, let it sit. But let me just also recommend something to you. There's a wonderful book called Pie in the Sky. It's a great book about baking at high altitude, and you might want to pick it up. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. All yeah, right. Thanks, George. Thank you. Thanks for calling. You have a good one. Yeah, All you right. too. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you're stuck in a rut in the kitchen, give us a call, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Eileen from Rochester, New York. Hi, Eileen. How can we help you today? I have a question about making basil pesto in bulk so that you can keep it. 
Um, I've tried various things. I've tried freezing it. I've tried putting olive oil on it. I've tried blanching the basil, and I never get completely satisfactory results. And I get a lot of basil from my CSA share. I have an answer, but Sarah, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say that the enemy of basil is oxygen, so it seems like the olive oil thing should work, just a little layer on top. Tell me what happens. Well, I put the layer on top, and then I go to use some, so I scrape off some of the olive oil, and then I put more olive oil on top. So either I don't cover it all, or I have to put so much in because I took a scoop of it out. It keeps diluting it. Do you also put plastic wrap right on top of it? No, I've not done that. Because that really helps, too. You just want to keep the air away from it. I've had gardens all my life, and I've grown lots of basil. I've tried to freeze it in ice cube trays. That was the thing I came down to. So I'd freeze it overnight in ice cube trays, pop them out, put them in big double wrap bags. But it's not nearly as good as the real deal. The real deal. Uh, Well, the two problems. Most basil in the United States has very little flavor compared to Italy. They're bigger leaves and they're coarse and less flavorful. That's interesting. The little tiny guy, that makes me think about the little tiny basil. And also the way you make it is very different in Italy because they start with the nuts and the garlic and they puree that. And then they'll add in some of the cheese. Then they'll add the basil really almost as the last thing and tons of it. I mean, the ratio is much basil, higher. Yeah, it's like almost all basil. And then just a little bit of oil. It's a fairly dry mixture. In any case, it's not going to be as good, but you know what? I, I use it in the winter and it's better than nothing. So I, I would say freezing ice cube trays. So what else can I do to preserve the tons of basil that I get? That's a problem too. Well, you know, one thing is if you have the roots on, a lot of time they'll give it to you with the roots yeah. on. I get it with the roots. Yeah. So if you, you can treat it like flowers. You put it with roots down in a glass of water and leave it outside. It hates the refrigerator. But it's only going to last two or three days. I know. This right. is a problem. I would make pesto and freeze it. and It won't it, be as good, it, but at least the, it will be a happy thing yeah. in February. And then, you know, when you make the pesto for freezing, use more oil than you normally would and more cheese and everything else. Well, Eileen, thank you for calling. Thanks for calling. Yes. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Alan. How are you? Where are you calling from? I'm calling from, well, I'm near Philadelphia right now. Okay. Can we help you? I hope so. Uh, Lately, I've been making, you know, making my own cookies, and sometimes I get an idea for flavor that I particularly, you know, want to see in a cookie. And this time, I'm just not getting there. What I want is to make a pistachio cookie with the kind of, like a peanut butter cookie, you know, with that much flavor. And I thought this should be easy. Take peanut butter cookie recipe, grind up some pistachios and substitute, and you're done, right? And the flavor just does not come through after baking, and I don't know why. I've tried adding some serious amounts of, you know, pistachio extract to the batter, to the icing applied after the batter, tried adding pistachios themselves to a kind of a bland cooking recipe, and it never happened. Why is the pistachio flavor so... Um, Elusive. So shy, yeah. Well, pistachios don't have as much flavor as peanuts. I mean, if, if you ever had a peanut butter ice cream, it's just packed with flavor. And if you have pistachio ice cream or gelato in Italy, it's green, <laughs> but it's artificially flavored <laughs> because pistachios don't have a lot of flavor. There's a company called Tourangelle, T-O-U-R-A-N-G-E-L-L-E, and they, they're from France, and they sell um, toasted nut oils. 
And one mm. of the ones that I love is toasted pistachio oil. It's probably fairly expensive proposition for a big batch of pistachio cookies, you think? No, I don't think so. It's really strong. It's like toasted sesame oil. Hmm. So a little goes a long well, way. That's a good idea. I love it. Either Chris or Alan, have you had toasted pumpkin seed oil? Mm-hmm. I which have is that. delicious in salads, although very strong. But this is similar in that it's sort of essence of pistachio, and it's. I well, think there, it's there's great. another product we just tasted in Milk Street. It was a pistachio cream, and it was sort of like almond butter. Yeah, but, but it was pistachio. It was a very dark green, and I would eat in the whole jar. If was they it pistachio we? Oh yeah. That's, That's another thing thought. to look at if you get pistachio cream. But to go back to your initial question, if you toasted or roasted the pistachios first and then maybe even ground them to make a flour out of it as part of the cookie, that would be one thing you could do. Substitute some of the all-purpose flour with a homemade pistachio flour. Mm-hmm. But just adding some chopped up pistachios isn't going to do very much. Try this oil. It also would idea. be delicious in a green salad or you know, with cheese. It's just wonderful, and it's a great company, Tourangelle. Okay, great. That sounds good. Well, now i got a few more things to Well, try. you know what, Alan, please, will you get back to us and let us know how it goes? Okay, sure. We always like to know. And send us a tin of the cookies. Yeah, well, that's fine to completely <laughs> please. acceptable. Anyway. Alan, thank you for calling. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to a special episode of Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we'll chat with Vicki Benison about the Italian grandmothers who hold the secrets to amazing pasta. That's coming up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. 
feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. I'm Christopher Kimball, and this is a special episode of Milk Street Radio. Next up, let's head into the kitchen with J.M. Hirsch, to learn one of my all-time favorite recipes, Neapolitan meatballs. JM, how are you? I'm doing great. So most people go to Naples for the pizza. Of course. I mean, most normal people. No, I'm not normal. You went for meatballs. Meatballs. I didn't even know that Naples was famous for meatballs. So what are Neapolitan meatballs? They Well, for one, they're massive. And they come to you on a plate, one or two of them, in this beautiful, sweet, glowing red pool of ragu. And, and you take your fork and you cleave into them and they just split most wonderfully because they are so tender. And then you taste them and they are so rich and so meaty. I had no idea that the meatball could be that good. And I had no idea why they were that good. And, and I had them at this restaurant, this Trattoria La Taverneta, the family-run place, five sisters, their parents, their grandmothers making lasagna in the back room. Amazing little place. They agreed to show me how they make their meatballs. And, and at first, I was equally confused because nothing seemed out of the ordinary. It was cheese, it was eggs, parsley, bread, and beef. But as so often is, you know, the secret is in the details, it was the amounts of these ingredients that they used. And the secret was a ton of bread. Now, usually you think that was filler. Right. It was cucina povera, right? Right. Poor cuisine. 
but you thought actually more breadcrumbs makes a better meatball? Well, yeah, and you know, very likely it was cochina pulverite, but it just so happened that that makes a delicious meatball. And, and you know, you, I watched one of the sisters, Rosa Vitozzi, make these meatballs. And she takes huge hunks of white bread and soaks it in water and squeezes it out and then crumbles that into the ground meat and, and mixes it all together. And she's adding so much that you think these meatballs are going to fall apart. And actually, they don't. And it, it was just the bread holds everything together. So it acts as a binder as well. As in it, and at the same time, keeps it feeling very tender. Now, what shocked me was the percentage of bread that she used to meat ratio, which was over 25% bread per mm. meatball. And as I ate my way around Naples, as I am wont to do, I found some recipes that used as much as 40% bread per recipe. And, and it was just really deliciously tender, meaty meatballs. So, so I have a question, though. You would think they wouldn't be meaty. They'd be tender and light. Yes. Yep. But are they still meaty? They were incredibly meaty. And, you know, and, and my take on it is the, the bread soaks up the flavor of the meat. It retains the juices of the meat and all that delicious fat. And, and the result was just really blew me away. So we brought the recipe back here. Are, are these baked or are they, they're cooked in a skillet? We bake them before we combine them with the ragu. And, and they held together great both during baking and when they're simmering in the ragu. And the only real adaptation we had to do, and, and frankly, it's, it's mostly because I think the sisters who make them in, in Naples are just so much more experienced than we are doing this. They had no trouble gauging the amount of moisture and the amount of bread per meatball. We found a little too, vari too much variability in that. And we weren't very good at squeezing out the right amount of liquid from the bread. We also found that the variety of bread we used right. was too challenging. So anyway, we ended up using panko breadcrumbs, which had a, a consistent feel in the, in the meatballs. Because otherwise you get too much bread or too little bread. Exactly, or too much moisture. Or too much moisture. So there we have it. We went to Naples, not for pizza. Not for pizza. You, you are a very strange person. <laughs> but, but for giant meatballs, which have a lot of bread in them, which makes them tender and lovely, and also very meaty. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can get this recipe for Neapolitan meatballs with ragu at MilkStreetRadio.com. I'm Christopher Kimball, and this is a special episode of Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's my interview with Vicki Benison, who travels across Italy in search of pasta-making grandmothers for her YouTube channel, Pasta Grannies. Vicki, welcome to Milk Street. Absolute pleasure to be talking to you. So a few years ago, uh, you realized that some of the classic cooking techniques, uh, culinary history of Italy was being lost, and you started to record Nonna, grannies, making pasta. Can I ask a question? What has changed uh, in Italy, in Italian homes, so that some of these techniques and recipes are not being continued? Um, the same changes that are happening everywhere else in the world. Um, women are going out to work and simply don't have the time. And there is a continuing reliance on uh, Nonna to make uh, Sunday lunch, and that has served them well so far. But I think the change is coming is over the next 20 years, what Nonna will be making will be quite different to up to, up to now. Uh, so I thought, let's capture it while it's still there. And that's why I picked up the camera. Well, maybe in 50 years, American grandmothers will be making handmade pasta and, and then... Italian grandmothers <laughs> will, will be heating up TV dinners. 
I mean, that would be fun, wouldn't it? That's that's one of the reasons for actually having the YouTube channel is just to inspire people. I'm not expecting people to start making pasta every day in the way that women have been doing, but perhaps to find enjoyment in making pasta, you know, a couple of times a month or once or twice a year. How do you go about filming this? Well, I start by thinking about where do I want to go in Italy um, and what pastas have I not filmed yet. So I'm always on the lookout for mentions of obscure pastas, as well as the obvious ones, of course, because sometimes I forget that I haven't done fettuccine, for example. (laughs) So um, we decide that we want to go to Liguria, and I'm working with a woman called Livia Di Giovanni, and she's my granny finder. And... Livia and I work out who we think would be good to contact. So that's often the organisers of food festivals, um, the local council, and also word of mouth. Um, One of the things we often do is, you know, we find on a train or a hotel receptionist and we say, do you have a grandmother? (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's an obvious We're we're always asking. (laughs) And and so you you film one segment a day or two segments a day or...? We film two to three grannies a day, and there's Olivia who comes with me, and then I have a cameraman, Andrea, who's also Italian, and he's extremely good at eating pasta, um, (laughs) which is important because the grandmothers are making the pasta for us, not for YouTube, not for the audience, you know, for us. And so we have pasta three or four times a day. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to have a lot of listeners really feeling terrible about your your job description. (laughs) So let's talk about some of the shapes. The the video, I just couldn't stop watching. And I don't remember the name of this pasta, but it was very, very thin stretched pasta over a straw, not a basket, but, but a circle. (laughs) <laughs> and I just was going like, I could not imagine how this woman was doing this. It was. Could you just describe it? Because it was, you know, I, I couldn't take my eyes off it. Isn't that a mad pasta? It's called Sufilindeo. Um, and you only find it uh, from a town in Sardinia called Nuoro. It's associated with a religious festival. And so you don't eat it normally I mean it's it's quite one of those mad things is you go to all that effort you you stretch the dough a bit like Chinese noodles the wheat noodles that you get sometimes and um, having got all your strands you then sort of lay them over um, this this special flat basket it's it's quite large yes it is these basket discs can be about 70 centimeters wide so you're stretching these uh, these pasta strands over that disc and you layer it three times in different directions and you end up with these sort of like wool strands of wool and and then you break it up and you dissolve it into mutton stock (laughs) (laughs) which you know is crackers because I sort of feel that it should be sort of left as works of art because it's so extraordinary well you know it's when you watch someone cook once in a while you go, there's not enough time left for me to ever figure out how to do this because the, you, you'd have to do that for a lot of years to get that right. She made it look easy, but it wasn't. No, it wasn't. What are some of the other shapes that you found that were just things you didn't know about that were pretty amazing? Yes, I mean, there are so many. I mean, one of the first ones I came across that was really obscure is something called Pifazak which is a kind of dumpling-type pasta from north of Lake Izio, so it's practically into um, Switzerland. And 
you, you, it actually means baby's nappies. Oh, charming. That's, <laughs> a, that's a great marketing. <laughs> I know. Terrific. That's probably why yeah. it isn't very popular. And so you kind of, it's, the, it's like swaddling clothes. It's the way that you fold them, like you, you know, when you're wrapping old-fashioned baby's nappies over a child. And uh, that served up with lashings of butter. So that was one that was fun. And, and uh, the other one I liked from that same area was uh, La Lumichelle della Duchessa, which is the Duchess's snails. And this was originally given to noble women after having had a baby. Yeah, I think you said that uh, it has cinnamon in it. Is, is that very yes. unusual or is cinnamon not that unusual in pasta? The cinnamon would have been hugely expensive. Now, of course, it's ubiquitous, but um, it was believed that everything that went into this plate of, of soup, pasta and broth, was maximized to um, helping women recover from the ordeal of giving birth. So, so you, you've interviewed 200 grandmothers, Nana. What, what surprises you? One of the things I've really appreciated from interviewing over 200 women is the advice for growing old, which is to stay really active. All these women have been on their feet all their lives. No one ever sits down and kind of watches television. They're always busy, busy, busy. Um, and I think the other theme that comes through is the frugality of these women. We've forgotten that about how to use every last little piece of dough or um, meat and nothing goes to waste. It's all really precious. Is there a, a grandmother you particularly remember uh, for whatever reason you'd want to share with us? I think one of the things that comes through for me, and it's not necessarily a granny, is family life and their willingness to have a party at a drop of a hat. Whenever we go there, it's a celebration and we end up being surrounded by friends and family, um, toasting the grandmother and what she's made. And that, I think that's fantastic. And I think the, in terms of answering your question about particular grannies, um, I have to say that Letizia, who is 100 years old and still making pasta, <laughs> is my current favorite. But I, I find it very difficult to just say one. I think I love them all. <laughs> Well, may you and I both be 100 years old someday and still making pasta, right? Exactly. Vicki, uh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you on uh, Mostry. Thank you. That was Vicki Benison. I spoke with her in 2019. Later this year, she's coming out with a new cookbook, Pasta Granny's Comfort Cooking. That's it for today. At Milk Street, we've developed recipes from all across Italy, from Milanese risotto to true lasagna bolognese. When you become a Milk Street member, you get full access to these recipes and every recipe we've developed, along with access to all of our live stream cooking classes, free standard shipping from the Milk Street store, and more. Just visit 177milkstreet.com to sign up today. You can also find every single one of our podcast episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet, on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. Thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. 
Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag. A watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.